Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast, this is your host Paul, and this is episode 139. This show is entitled, Napoleon Wasn't Defeated by the Russians. Human skulls, deliberately warped into strange alien-like shapes, have been unearthed in a 1,000-year-old cemetery in Mexico, researchers say. The practice of deforming skulls of children as they grew was common in Central America, and these findings suggest the tradition spread farther north than had been thought, scientists added. From the www.livescience.com website. Alien-like skulls have been excavated in Mexico. The cemetery was discovered by residents of the small Mexican village of Onovas in 1999 as they were building an irrigation canal. It is the first pre-Hispanic cemetery found in the northern Mexican state of Sonora. The site, referred to as El Cementerio, contained the remains of 25 human burials. Thirteen of them had deformed skulls, which were elongated and pointy at the back, and five had mutilated teeth. Dental mutilation involves filling or grinding teeth into odd shapes, while cranial deformation involves deforming the normal growth of a child's skull by applying force. For example, by using cloths to bind wooden boards against their heads. Cranial deformation has been used by different societies in the world as a ritual practice, or for distinction of status within a group, or to distinguish between social groups, said researcher Cristina Garcia Moreno, an archaeologist at Arizona State University. The reason why these individuals at El Cementerio deformed their skulls is still unknown. The most common comment I've read from people that see the pictures of cranial deformation has been that they think these people were aliens, Garcia added. I could say that some say that as a joke, but the interesting thing is that some do think so. Obviously we are talking about human beings, not of aliens. Of the 25 burials, 17 were children between 5 months and 16 years of age. The high number of children seen at the site could suggest inept cranial deformation killed them due to excessive force against the skull. The children had no signs of disease that had caused their deaths. Although cranial deformation and dental mutilation were common features among the pre-Hispanic populations of Mesoamerica and Western Mexico, scientists had not seen either practice in Sonora or the American Southwest which share a common pre-Hispanic culture. The researchers suggest the people at El Cementerio had been influenced by recent migrants from the south. 
the most important implication would be to extend the northern boundary of the Mesoamerican influence, Garcia told Live Science. A number of skeletons also were found with earrings, nose rings, bracelets, pendants and necklaces made from seashells and snails from the Gulf of California. One person was buried with a turtle shell on the chest. It remains uncertain why some of these people were buried with ornaments, while others were not, or another mystery, why only one of the 25 skeletons was female. During the next field season, the researchers aim to determine the cemetery's total size and hope to find more burials to get a clearer idea of the society's burial customs. With new information, we also hope to determine whether there was any interaction between these and Mesoamerican societies, how it was and when it happened, they said. Garcia and her colleagues completed their analysis of the skeletal remains in November. They plan to submit their research to either the journal American Antiquity or the journal Latin American Antiquity. And while we're discussing brains, from the www.msnbc.msn.com website, chimp brains reveal the secret of why humans are much smarter. And this is an article by Tina Goes. Despite sharing 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees, humans have much bigger brains and are, as a species, much more intelligent. Now a new study sheds light on why. Unlike chimps, humans undergo a massive explosion in white matter growth, or the connections between brain cells, in the first two years of life. The new results published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B partly explain why humans are so much brainier than our nearest living relatives. But they also reveal why the first two years of life play such a key role in human development. What's really unique about us is that our brains experience rapid establishment of connectivity in the first two years of life, said Chet Sherwood, an evolutionary neuroscientist at George Washington University, who was not involved in the study. That probably helps to explain why those first few years of human life are so critical to set us on the course to language acquisition, cultural knowledge, and all those things that make us human. While past studies have shown that human brains go through a rapid expansion in connectivity, it wasn't clear that was unique among great apes, a group that includes chimps, gorillas, orangutans and humans. To prove it was the signature of humanity's superior intelligence, researchers would need to prove it was different from that in our closest living relatives. However, a US moratorium on acquiring new chimpanzees for medical research meant that people like Sherwood, who is trying to understand chimpanzee brain development, had to study decades-old baby chimpanzee brains that were lying around in veterinary pathologists' labs, Sherwood told Life Science. But in Japan, those limitations didn't go into place until later, allowing the researchers to do live magnetic resonance imaging or MRI brain scans of three baby chimps as they grew to six years of age. They then compared the data with existing brain imaging scans for six macaques and 28 Japanese children. The researchers found that chimpanzees and humans both had much more brain development in early life than macaques. The increase in total cerebral volume during the early infancy and the juvenile stage in chimpanzees and humans was approximately three times greater than that in macaques, the researchers wrote in the journal article. But human brains expanded much more dramatically than chimpanzee brains during the first few years of life. Most of that human brain expansion was driven by explosive growth in the connections between brain cells which manifests itself in an expansion in white matter. 
Chimpanzees' brain volumes ballooned about half that of humans' expansion during that time period. The findings, while not unexpected, are unique because the researchers followed the same individual chimpanzees over time. Past studies have instead pieced together brain development from scans on several apes of different ages, Sherwood said. The explosion in white matter may also explain why experiences during the first few years of life can greatly affect children's IQ, social life and long-term response to stress. That opens an opportunity for environment and social experience to influence the moulding of connectivity, Sherwood said. With powerful engines, excessive firepower and heavy armour, the newly christened battleship USS South Dakota steamed out of Philadelphia in August of 1942, spoiling for a fight. The crew was made up of green boys, new recruits who enlisted after the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor, who had no qualms about either their destination or the action they were likely to see. Brash and confident, the crew couldn't get through the Panama Canal fast enough, and their captain, Thomas Gatch, made no secret of the grudge he bore against the Japanese. No ship more eager to fight ever entered the Pacific, one naval historian wrote. From the blogs.smithsonianmag.com website, from the Past Imperfect series, the boy who became a World War II veteran at the age of 13. And this was posted by Gilbert King. In less than four months, the South Dakota would limp back to port in New York for repairs to extensive damage suffered in some of World War II's most ferocious battles at sea. The ship would become one of the most decorated warships in US naval history and acquire a new moniker to reflect the secrets it carried. The Japanese, it turned out, were convinced the vessel had been destroyed at sea, and the Navy was only too happy to keep the mystery alive. Stripping the South Dakota of identifying markings and avoiding any mention of it in communications and even sailors' diaries. When newspapers later reported on the ship's remarkable accomplishments in the Pacific theatre, they referred to it simply as Battleship X. That the vessel was not resting at the bottom of the Pacific was just one of the secrets Battleship X carried through day after day of hellish war at sea. Aboard was a gunner from Texas who would soon become the nation's youngest decorated war hero. Calvin Graham, the fresh-faced seaman who had set off for battle for the Philadelphia Navy Yard in the summer of 1942, was only 12 years old. Graham was just 11 and in the sixth grade in Crockett, Texas, when he hatched his plan to lie about his age and join the Navy. One of seven children living at home with an abusive stepfather, he and an older brother moved into a cheap rooming house and Calvin supported himself by selling newspapers and delivering telegrams on weekends and after school. Even though he moved out, his mother would occasionally visit sometimes to simply sign his report cards at the end of a semester. The country was at war, however, and being around newspapers afforded the boy the opportunity to keep up on events overseas. I didn't like Hitler to start with, Graham later told a reporter. When he learned that some of his cousins had died in battles, he knew what he wanted to do with his life. He wanted to fight. In those days, you could join up at 16 with your parents' consent but they preferred 17, Graham later said. But he had no intention of waiting five more years. 
He began to shave at age 11, hoping it would somehow make him look older when he met with military recruiters. Then he lined up with some buddies who forged his mother's signature and stole a notary stamp from a local hotel and waited to enlist. At 5 foot 2 and just 125 pounds, Graham dressed in an older brother's clothes and fedora and practiced talking deep. What worried him most was not that an enlistment officer would spot the forged signature. It was the dentist who would peer into the mouths of potential recruits. I knew he'd know how young I was by my teeth, Graham recalled. He lined up behind a couple of guys he knew were already 14 or 15, and when the dentist kept saying I was 12, I said I was 17. At last, Graham played his ace, telling the dentist that he knew for a fact that the boys in front of him weren't 17 yet, and the dentist had let them through. Finally, Graham recalled, he said he didn't have time to mess with me, and he let me go. Graham maintained that the Navy knew he and the others online that day were underage, but we were losing the war then, so they took six of us. It wasn't uncommon for boys to lie about their age in order to serve. Ray Jackson, who joined the Marines at 16 during World War II, founded the group Veterans of Underage Military Service in 1991, and it listed more than 1,200 active members, including 26 women. Some of these guys came from large families and there wasn't enough food to go around, and this was a way out, Jackson told a reporter. Others just had family problems and wanted to get away. Calvin Graham told his mother he was going to visit relatives. Instead, he dropped out of the seventh grade and shipped off to San Diego for basic training. There, he said, the drill instructors were aware of the underage recruits and often made them run extra miles and lug heavier packs. By the time the USS South Dakota made it to the Pacific, it had become part of a task force alongside the legendary carrier USS Enterprise, the Big E. By early October 1942, the two ships, along with their escorting cruisers and destroyers, raced to the South Pacific to engage in the fierce fighting in the battle for Guadalcanal. After they reached the Santa Cruz Islands on October 26, the Japanese quickly set their sights on the carrier and launched an air attack that easily penetrated the Enterprise's own air patrol. The carrier USS Hornet was repeatedly torpedoed and sank off Santa Cruz. But the South Dakota managed to protect Enterprise, destroying 26 enemy planes with a barrage from its anti-aircraft guns. Standing on the bridge, Captain Gatch watched as a 500-pound bomb struck the South Dakota's main gun turret. The explosion injured 50 men, including the skipper, and killed one. The ship's armour was so thick, many of the crew were unaware they'd been hit. But word quickly spread that Gatch had been knocked unconscious. Quick-thinking quartermasters managed to save the captain's life. His jugular vein had been severed and the ligaments in his arms suffered permanent damage, but some on board were aghast that he didn't hit the deck when he saw the bomb coming. I consider it beneath the dignity of a captain of an American battleship to flop for a Japanese bomb, Gatch later said. The ship's young crew continued to fire at anything in the air, including American bombers that were low on fuel and trying to land on the Enterprise. The South Dakota was quickly getting a reputation for being wild-eyed and quick to shoot, and Navy pilots were warned not to fly anywhere near it. The South Dakota was fully repaired at Pearl Harbor, and Captain Gatch returned to his ship wearing a sling and bandages. Seaman Graham quietly became a teenager, turning 13 on November the 6th, just as Japanese naval forces began shelling an American airfield on Guadalcanal Island. Steaming south with the Enterprise, Task Force 64, with the South Dakota and another battleship, the USS Washington, took four American destroyers on a night search for enemy near Savo Island. There on November 14, Japanese ships opened fire, sinking or heavily damaging the American destroyers in a four-day engagement that became known as the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal. 
Later that evening, the South Dakota encountered eight Japanese destroyers with deadly accurate 16-inch guns. The South Dakota set fire to three of them. They never knew what sank them, Gatch would recall. One Japanese ship set its searchlights on the South Dakota and the ship took 42 enemy hits, temporarily losing power. Graham was manning his gun when shrapnel tore through his jaw and mouth. Another hit knocked him down and he fell through three storeys of the superstructure. Still, the 13-year-old made it to his feet, dazed and bleeding, and helped pull other crew members to safety while others were thrown by the force of the explosion, their bodies aflame, into the Pacific. I took belts off the dead and made tourniquets for the living and gave them cigarettes and encouraged them all night, Graham later said. It was a long night. It aged me. The shrapnel had knocked out his front teeth and he had flash burns from the hot guns. But he was fixed up with salve and a couple of stitches, he recalled. I didn't do any complaining because half the ship was dead. It was a while before they worked on my mouth. In fact, the ship had casualties of 38 men killed and 60 wounded. Regaining power and after afflicting heavy damage to the Japanese ships, the South Dakota rapidly disappeared in the smoke. Captain Gatch would later remark of his green men, not one of the ship's company flinched from his post or showed the least disaffection. With the Japanese Imperial Navy under the impression that it had sunk the South Dakota, the legend of Battleship X was born. In mid-December, the damaged ship returned to the Brooklyn Naval Yard for major repairs, where Gatch and his crew were profiled for their heroic deeds in the Pacific. Calvin Graham received a bronze star for his distinguishing himself in combat, as well as a purple heart for his injuries. But he couldn't bask in glory with his fellow crewmen while their ship was being repaired. Graham's mother, reportedly having recognised her son in newsreel footage, wrote to the Navy revealing the gunner's true age. Graham returned to Texas and was thrown in a brig at Corpus Christi, Texas for almost three months. Battleship X returned to the Pacific and continued to shoot Japanese planes out of the sky. Graham, meanwhile, managed to get a message out to his sister Pearl, who complained to the newspapers that the Navy was mistreating the baby vet. The Navy eventually ordered Graham's release, but not before stripping him of his medals for lying about his age and revoking his disability benefits. He was simply tossed from jail with a suit and a few dollars in his pocket, and no honourable discharge. Back in Houston, though, he was treated as a celebrity. Reporters were eager to write his story. And when the war film Bombardier premiered at a local theatre, the film's star, Pat O'Brien, invited Graham to the stage to be saluted by the audience. The attention quickly faded. At age 13, Graham tried to return to school, but he couldn't keep pace with students his age and quickly dropped out. He married at age 14, became a father the following year, and found work as a welder in a Houston shipyard. Neither his job nor his marriage lasted long. At 17 years old and divorced, and with no service record, Graham was about to be drafted when he enlisted in the Marine Corps. He soon broke his back in a fall, for which he received a 20% service-connected disability. The only work he could find after that was selling magazine subscriptions. When President Jimmy Carter was elected in 1976, Graham began writing letters hoping that Carter, an old Navy man, might be sympathetic. All Graham had wanted was an honourable discharge, so he could get help with his medical and dental expenses. I had already given up fighting for the discharge, Graham said at the time. But then they came along with this discharge program for Vietnam-era deserters. I know they had their reasons for doing what they did, but I figure I damn sure deserved an honourable discharge, more than they did. In 1977, Texas Senators Lloyd Benston and John Tower introduced a bill to give Graham his discharge, and in 1978, Carter announced that it had been approved and that Graham's medals would be restored, with the exception of the Purple Heart. 
Ten years later, President Ronald Reagan signed legislation approving disability benefits for Graham. At the age of 12, Calvin Graham broke the law to serve his country, at a time when the US military might well be accused of having had a don't ask, don't tell policy with regard to underage enlistees. For fear of losing their benefits or their honourable discharges, many baby vets never came forward to claim the nation's gratitude. It wasn't until 1994, two years after he died, that the military relented and returned the seaman's last medal, his Purple Heart, to his family. Archaeologists believe they are about to unravel the enigmatic smile behind Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece Mona Lisa after discovering what may be the skeleton of a woman who posed for the world's most famous painting. From the www.phenomenica.com website, the skeleton found in Florence, that of Mona Lisa's model? Lisa Gherardini, the second wife of wealthy Florentine silk merchant Francesco del Giocondo, is recorded as buried in St. Ursula Convent, and the team of Italian art historians, archaeologists, believe they have found her remains. The team, led by Silvano Vincetti, a former TV producer, is attempting to exhume and identify Gherardini's remains by sending the bones to universities in Italy and abroad where they will be checked against the DNA of two confirmed relatives of Gherardini, the Daily Mail reported. Once we identify the remains, we can reconstruct the face with a margin of error of 2 to 8%. By doing this, we will finally be able to answer the question the art historians can't. Who was the model for Leonardo? Vincetti was quoted by the paper as telling CNN. It remains one of the great mysteries of the art world. What is the secret behind the mysterious smile, boasted by the woman in the Mona Lisa, the world's most famous painting? There has been centuries of debate over the 77 by 52 centimetre picture, also known as La Gioconda. Most modern historians agree that the lady depicted in the Mona Lisa was Lisa del Giocondo, who became a nun after her husband's death. She died in the convent on July 15, 1542, aged 63. However, Vincetti is not certain whether the painting that now hangs in the Louvre in Paris is of her. When Leonardo began painting the model in front of him, he did not draw that metaphysical, ironic, poignant, elusive smile, but rather he painted a person who was dark and depressed, he said. Vincetti believes a famous smile was added later, and may belong to da Vinci's longtime assistant Gian Giacomo Caprotti, also rumoured to have been his lover. Some art historians say the Mona Lisa is actually a sneaky self-portrait, an archaeological team began digging at the abandoned convent of St Ursula last year. The team first had to dig through thick concrete, laid down ahead of plans to turn the convent into army barracks. They quickly struck gold, finding a crypt they believed to have been Lisa's final resting place, and soon after they unearthed a female-sized human skull.
Scientists are studying the Earth's magnetic field using the stones that line Maori steam ovens. From the www.bbc.co.uk website, an article by Jonathan Amos. Maori stones hold magnetic clues. The cooking process generates so much heat that the magnetic minerals in these stones will realign themselves with the current field direction. An archaeological search is underway in New Zealand to find sites containing old ovens or hungi as they are known. Abandoned stones at these locations could shed light on Earth's magnetic behaviour going back hundreds of years. We have very good paleomagnetic data from across the world recording field strength and direction, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, says Gillian Turner from Victoria University, Wellington in New Zealand. The Southwest Pacific is the gap, and in order to complete global models, we're rather desperate for good, high-resolved data from our part of the world, she told BBC News. The New Zealand researcher is working on a project to retrieve information about changes in the Earth's magnetic field stretching back over the past 10,000 years. From data on the last few centuries, she would ordinarily have turned to pottery. When these objects are fired, the minerals in their clay are heated above the Curie temperature and are demagnetised. Then as the pots cool down, those minerals become magnetised again in the direction of the prevalent field. And the strength of the magnetisation is directly related to the strength of that field. Unfortunately for Dr Turner, the first settlers in New Zealand 700 to 800 years ago, the Māori did not use pottery. However, the researcher has hit upon a fascinating alternative. She is now exploiting the Māori cooking tradition of the steam oven. These were pits in the ground into which were placed very hot stones, covered with baskets of food and layers of ferned fronds soaked in water. The whole construction was then topped with soil and left to cook for several hours. Dr Turner and colleagues experimented with a modern-day hungi to see if the stones at the base of the pit could achieve the necessary Curie temperatures to reset their magnetisation, to prove that they could be used as an alternative data source for their study. The Maori legend is that the hones achieve white-hot heat, she explained. Well, red-hot is about 700 degrees, and so white-hot would be a good deal more than that. But by putting some thermocouples in the stones, we were able to show they got as high as 1100 degrees Celsius, which of itself is quite surprising. At that temperature, rock-forming minerals start to become plastic, if not melt. By placing a compass on top of the cooled hungi stones, Dr Turner's team was able to establish that a remagnetization had indeed taken place. It turns out that hungi stones were carefully chosen, and one of the most popular types was an andesite boulder found in central North Island. The Maori prefer these volcanic boulders because they don't crack and shatter in the fire. And from our point of view, they're the best because magnetically, they behave better. They are formed with a high concentration of magnetite, the Wellington scientist said. But there are some sedimentary rocks which we can also use. Dr Turner's team is now scouring New Zealand for archaeological digs that have uncovered hungi ovens. It is crucial that a date is recovered with the stones. This can be provided by radiocarbon analysis of the charcoal left from the firewood used to light the oven. Hungi stones are only likely to take Dr Turner back to the 1200s for magnetic data deeper in time. She needs to go to other sources. We're also studying volcanic rocks because they've erupted above the Curie temperature. And the other source of information is lake sediments. Long core sediments can give us a continuous record at specific places.
A spider that builds elaborate fake spiders and hangs them in its web has been discovered in the Peruvian Amazon. From the www.wired.com website, the spider that builds its own spider decoys has been discovered. And it's written by Nadia Drake. Believed to be a new species in the genus Cyclosa, the arachnid crafts the larger spider from leaves, debris and dead insects. Though Cyclosa includes other sculpting arachnids, this is the first one observed to build a replica with multiple spidery legs. Scientists suspect the fake spiders serve as decoys, part of a defence mechanism meant to confuse or distract predators. It seems like a really well-evolved and very specialised behaviour, said Phil Torres, who described the find in a blog entry written for Rainforest Expeditions. Torres, a biologist and science educator, divides his time between Southern California and Peru, where he's involved in research and education projects. Considering that spiders can already make really impressive geometric designs with their webs, it's no surprise that they can take that leap to make an impressive design with debris and other things, he said. In September, Torres was leading visitors into a floodplain surrounding Peru's Tambatata Research Centre, located near the western edge of the Amazon. From a distance they saw what resembled a smallish dead spider in a web. It looked kind of flaky, like the fungus-covered corpse of an arthropod. But then the flaky spider started moving. A closer look revealed the illusion. Above the one-inch long decoy sat a much smaller spider. Striped and less than a quarter of an inch long, the spider was shaking the web. It was unlike anything Torres had ever seen. It blew my mind, he said. So Torres got in touch with arachnologist Linda Rayor of Cornell University, who confirmed the find was unusual. The odds are that this species is unidentified, she said, and even if it has been named, that this behaviour hasn't previously been recorded. Raynor notes that while more observations are necessary to confirm a new species, decoys with legs and the web-shaking behaviour aren't common in known cyclosa. That's really kind of cool, she said. Afterward, Torres returned to the trails near the research centre. Only within roughly one square mile area near the floodplain did Torres find more spider-building spiders. About 25 of them. They could be quite locally restricted, he said. But for all I know, there's millions of them in the forest beyond. The spider's webs were crafted around face height, near the trail, and about the width of a stretched out hand. Some of the decoys placed in the webs looked rather realistic. Others resembled something more like a cartoon octopus. I have never seen a structure just like this, said William Eberhard, an entomologist at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute and University of Costa Rica, who studies spiders and web building. Though cyclosa are known for building decoys, most of the described spiders' constructions are clumpy, made out of multiple little balls built from egg sacs, debris or prey, rather than something resembling an actual spider. Known cyclosa don't have that spider with leg looking thing, which is why we think it's a new species, Torres said. But without a permit to collect any organisms, anatomical confirmation of the new species is on hold. Torres is returning to the site in January and will be able to collect some spiders then. Eberhard notes that identifying a new species based on the decoy building behaviour alone is probably not possible. Species are distinguished on the basis of the structure of the male and female genitalia, he said, to a lesser extent on the overall abdomen shape. And if you visit the show notes for episode 139 of the Origins podcast at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article, there are two photographs of these spider decoys and they're really quite good. Worth a look.
History has taught us that Napoleon, in his invasion of Russia in 1812, marched into Moscow with his army largely intact and retreated only because the citizens of Moscow burned three-fourths of the city, depriving the army of food and supplies. The harsh Russian winter then devastated the army as it retreated. The Russians' victory, commemorated by Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture, was one of the great upsets of military history. But no one recognised the truly great power in this war. From the www.slate.com website, Napoleon wasn't defeated by the Russians. Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture gives too much credit to cannons. And this article was written by Joe Knight. In Vilnius, Lithuania, during the winter of 2001, workers were digging trenches for telephone lines and demolishing the old Soviet barracks that had stood for decades. A bulldozer scraped up something white, so the operator hopped down and, to his surprise, saw the skull and other bones of a human being. Another worker later claimed that the things just kept coming out of the ground. There were thousands of them. Eighty years earlier, a grave had been found with the remains of 700 people killed by the Soviet Committee for State Security, commonly known as the KGB. Could this be one of those secret places where the KGB disposed of its victims? Or could it be one of the mass burials of Jews murdered by the Nazis? When archaeologists from the University of Vilnius arrived, they found that the bodies were stacked three deep in V-shaped trenches that were apparently dug as defensive positions. It appeared that the skeletons were the remains of soldiers. Two thousand skeletons were excavated, along with belt buckles and regimental numbers on them. Along with the finds were 20 franc coins dating from the early 1800s. It finally dawned on the scientists what they had found, the remains of Napoleon's Grande Armée. Napoleon had led 600,000 men into Russia with the intent of conquering the country. Of these, only about 30,000 survived, and of that number, it is said that fewer than 1,000 were ever able to return to duty. What incredible circumstances could have caused the defeat of one of the greatest armies on the European continent, led by one of the greatest generals of all time? Surprisingly, it wasn't enemy soldiers or the normal privations soldiers experience that devastated Napoleon's army. Most of his soldiers were battle-hardened young men, so they should have been able to tolerate the cold, hunger, long marches and fatigue. No? It was a microscopic organism that wreaked havoc and annihilated Napoleon's army and his grand plans for conquest. A microbe called typhus, spread by a scourge of lice. Napoleon initially had no reason to invade Russia. During the Battle of Friedland in June of 1807, Napoleon's army defeated the Russian army and on July the 7th, 1807, France and Alexander I of Russia signed the Treaties of Tilsit, which made the two countries allies, and among other things, prohibited Russia from doing business with Britain. Surprisingly, Napoleon did not take any land from Russia or request war reparations. By early 1812, Napoleon controlled most of the land between Spain and Russia. However, England controlled the seas and Napoleon wanted India, which was then an English colony. Napoleon's only hope of taking India was to take it by land, which meant controlling Russia. Since the Treaty of Tilsit, France and Russia had been tense allies. Russia had been violating the treaty by trading with England, and Napoleon, finally fed up, used this as an excuse to invade Russia. In June 1812, Napoleon's army assembled in eastern Germany. With magnificent fanfare, Napoleon reviewed his troops on the west bank of the Niemen River on June 22, 1812. Napoleon's engineers built a pontoon bridge over the river and the army entered Russian-controlled Poland the next day. Things were going well. The summer, though hot and dry, made marching over the roads easy. 
The supply column stayed slightly ahead of the soldiers, so food was readily available. And the soldiers were in good health. Though military hospitals were established along the route to Poland in Magdeburg, Erfurt, Hosen and Berlin, there was little need for their services. The army reached Vilnius in four days, meeting no resistance from Russian troops. Poland is where things started going badly for Napoleon. He found the region filthy beyond belief. The peasants were unwashed, with matted hair, and ridden with lice and fleas, and the wells were fouled. Since the army was now in enemy territory, the supply trains had to move to the rear. The roads were soft with loose dirt, or were deeply rutted from the spring rains. The supply trains lagged farther and farther behind the main body of soldiers, and it became difficult to provide food and water. The army was so huge that it was nearly impossible to keep military formation intact, and the greater part of the army dissolved into straggling, sprawling mobs. Many of the soldiers pillaged the homes, livestock and fields of the local peasants. Nearly 20,000 army horses died from lack of water and fodder on the way to Vilnius. The homes of the peasants were so filthy that they seemed to be alive with cockroaches. The typical battlefield diseases of dysentery and other intestinal diseases began to appear, and though new hospitals were set up in Danzig, Königsberg and Thorn, they were unable to deal with the large numbers of sick soldiers sent back to the rear. But Napoleon's problems were just beginning. Several days after crossing the Nyman, a number of soldiers began to develop high fevers and a red rash on their bodies. Some of them developed a bluish tinge to their faces and then rapidly died. Typhus had made its appearance. Typhus had been present in Poland and Russia for many years, but it had gotten worse since the Russian army had devastated Poland while retreating from Napoleon's forces. A lack of sanitation combined with the unusually hot summer made an ideal environment for the spread of lice. It would be an entire century after the 1812 campaign before scientists realised that typhus is found in the faeces of lice. The typical French soldier was dirty and sweaty and lived in the same clothes for days. This is the perfect environment for lice to feed on his body and find a home in the seams of his clothing. Once the clothes and the skin of the soldier were contaminated with lice excrement, the smallest scratch or abrasion would have been enough for the typhus germ to enter the soldier's body. To compound the problem, the soldiers were sleeping in large groups in confined spaces for safety. They were concerned that the Russians would attack or the Poles would retaliate. This closeness allowed the lice to jump quickly to soldiers who were not infested. Only a month into the campaign, Napoleon lost 80,000 soldiers who were either incapacitated or had died from typhus. Under military surgeon Baron D.J. Larry, the army's medical and sanitary measures were the finest in the world, but no one could have coped with the scale of the epidemic. An eyewitness account gives details of one soldier's experience with a lice infestation. Bourgeon went to sleep on a reed mat and was soon awakened by the activities of the lice. Finding himself literally covered with them, he stripped off his shirt and trousers and threw them into the fire. They exploded like the fire of two ranks of infantry. He could not get rid of them for two months. All of his companions swarmed with lice. Many were bitten and developed spotted fever. In other words, typhus. On July 28, three of Napoleon's officers raised concerns with him that the fight with the Russians was becoming dangerous. The loss of troops from disease and desertion had reduced his effective fighting strength to about half. Adding to this difficulty, the problem of finding provisions in hostile territory was becoming daunting. Napoleon listened to their arguments and agreed to end the campaign. But only two days later, he changed his mind and told his generals, The very danger pushes us on to Moscow. The die is cast. Victory will justify and save us. So Napoleon and his sick, weary soldiers continued on. 
Smolensk fell to Napoleon on August 17, and Valentino fell quickly after that. The Russians retreated as the French advanced, drawing Napoleon deeper into Russian territory. Napoleon had split his army into three parts. By August 25, Napoleon had lost 105,000 of his main army of 265,000, leaving just 160,000 soldiers. Within two weeks, Typhus had reduced the army to 103,000. General Mikhail Kutusov of the Russian forces set up a defensive position in Borodino, about 70 miles west of Moscow. On September 7, French forces engaged the Russians. Both sides suffered heavy casualties. Napoleon then marched into Moscow, but it was a Pyrrhic victory. Only approximately 90,000 French soldiers remained. Napoleon expected the Russians to surrender. However, the citizens of the city simply left Moscow to Napoleon. Three-fourths of the city had been burned by the time Napoleon's army arrived, and there was no food or other provisions for them. 15,000 reinforcements joined Napoleon in Moscow, but of those, 10,000 died of disease. With the Russian winter rapidly approaching, Napoleon had no choice but to retreat back to France. Napoleon and the remains of his army stumbled into Smolensk, hoping to find food and shelter. Arriving on November 8th during the bitter cold, Napoleon found the hospitals already crowded with sick and injured. Discipline was deteriorating, and the final blow came when Napoleon found that the supplies he had hoped for were waiting for him had been consumed by reserve and communication troops. Leaving Smolensk on November 13th, the army arrived in Vilnius on December 8. Only 20,000 soldiers remained that could be considered fit enough to fight. Having heard of an impending coup d'etat in France by General Claude Francois de Malay, Napoleon left General Joachim Murat in charge and hastened to Paris. Murat refused to make a stand in Vilnius. He left his guns and the booty obtained in Moscow to the advancing Russians and retreated back towards the Nyman, crossing on December the 14th with fewer than 40,000 men, mostly incapacitated. So ended Napoleon's great dream of reaching India through Russia. Many of the dead soldiers were buried in defensive trenches that were dug during the retreat. It was in one of these trenches that, almost two centuries later, construction workers found the remains of Napoleon's Grande Armée. Didier Rayou from the Université de la Méditerranée in Marseille analysed the dental pulp of 72 teeth taken from the bodies of 35 of the soldiers found in Vilnius. The pulp from seven soldiers included the DNA from Bartonella Quintana, an organism responsible for trench fever, another louse-borne disease that was common during World War I. The DNA from three soldiers contained sequences from the organism which causes epidemic typhus. Overall, 29% of the remains had evidence of typhus or B. Quintana infection, implying that a major contributing factor to Napoleon's defeat was lice. Most people are familiar with the ending of Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture, commissioned by Russia to celebrate Russia's defeat of Napoleon. The musical score ends with the sounds of cannons booming and bells pealing, However, if Tchaikovsky wanted to accurately record the sound of Napoleon's defeat, one would only hear the soft, quiet sound of lice munching on human flesh. An organism too small to be seen by the human eye had changed the course of human history.
just on a side note there, I actually sang the 1812 Overture with an orchestra a few months back with one of my choirs. Not many people realise that there is a choral score that goes with the orchestration. If you ever find it, it's worth a listen to. And it's certainly an impressive and powerful sing. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes are held at the Origins website, www.origins.info. And if you'd like to provide feedback for the podcast, whether it be through iTunes or via email, all feedback is greatly appreciated. And if you're looking for updates about the Origins or Mysteries Abound podcast, visit my Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash paulrexy, P-A-U-L-R-E-X-Y, or just click on the Facebook link from the show notes website, the Origins website, that is. And to bring the podcast to a close, an article from the blogs.smithsonianmag.com website. A history of sequins from King Tut to the King of Pop. What do Michael Jackson, King Tut and Leonardo da Vinci have in common? A penchant for sequins. At some point between 1480 and 1482... Leonardo whipped together a sketch for a machine that, using levers and pulleys, would punch small discs out of a metal sheet. Since the device was never actually made, we don't know if the Renaissance jack-of-all-trades dreamt it up to glamorise the gomorra, a typical woman's dress of the time, or if it had some greater utilitarian purpose. Going back centuries before Leonardo, there's Tutankhamun, When King Tut's tomb was discovered in 1922, gold sequin-like discs were found sewn onto the Egyptian royal's garments. It's assumed they'd ensure he'd be financially or sartorially prepared for the afterlife. Sewing precious metals and coins onto clothing wasn't just prepping for the hereafter. In fact, the origins of the word sequin have always referenced wealth. The Arabic word sika means coin or minting dye. During the 13th century, gold coins produced in Venice were known as zucchino. For centuries, variations of sika and zucchino were used in Europe and the Middle East. Incidentally, in England, they're not sequins, they're spangles. Sewing gold and other precious metals onto clothing was multifunctional, serving as a status symbol a theft deterrent, or a spiritual guide. Especially for those with more nomadic lifestyles, coins were kept close to the body and attached to clothes. In addition to safekeeping valuables, sequined clothing doubled as ostentatious displays of wealth in places like Egypt, India and Peru, and with their glaring sheen they were meant to ward off evil spirits. An example of how we wear sequins today comes from the Plymouth Plantation women's waistcoat. The museum website explains, These fashionable items of dress were popular in the first quarter of the 17th century for women of court, the nobility and those who had achieved a certain level of wealth. The jacket, a reproduction of a garment at the Victoria and Albert Museum, includes an astonishing 10,000 sequins, hand-stitched by volunteers using a historic technique. The reflective bits of metal sewn onto the Plymouth jacket and dresses, bonnets and other jackets during the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries made the garments and accessories look fancy. And that trend grew exponentially after the discovery of sequins in King Tut's tomb. 
the round discs became all the rage on the garments of the 1920s and were typically made of metal. Imagine a flapper dancing in a dress weighed down by thousands of metal sequins. In the 1930s, a process to electroplate gelatin, hello, jello, produced a lighter weight version of the shiny metal discs. But one major obstacle, besides the colour being lead-based, was that the gelatin sequins were finicky. They would melt if they got wet or too warm. So getting caught in a thunderstorm could leave you in a sequinless sheath. Or, as the blog, Fashion Preserved, mentioned, missing sequins can tell tales. For instance, the warmth of a dance partner's clammy hand on the back of a dress could melt the sequins. While not viable for their longevity on clothing, today they've become known for their edibility. It's easy to find recipes to make palatable, although definitely not vegan, sequins from gelatin to decorate cakes and assorted baked goods. The guy behind our contemporary understanding of sequins is Herbert Lieberman. After realising that gelatin sequins wouldn't do the trick, he worked with Eastman Kodak, a company that had begun using acetate in its film stock in the 1930s. Acetate film is a specific type of plastic material called cellulose acetate. To develop acetate sequins, they looked beautiful, but they were still fragile. As Lieberman told a fanzine magazine, the light would penetrate through the colour, hit the silver and reflect back, he says. Like you painted a mirror with nail polish. Brilliant, but brittle. Acetate will crack like glass. The harder the plastic, the nicer the sequins going to be. In 1952, DuPont invented Mylar, and that changed the sequin game yet again. The largest sequin producer, the Lieberman-owned company Algae Trimmings Co., now based in Hallandale Beach, Florida, adopted the transparent polyester film. Mylar surrounded the plastic-coloured sequin and protected it from the washing machine. Voila! Or, sort of. Eventually the Mylar acetate combination was discarded for vinyl plastic. More durable and cost-effective, yes. Although we know that eventually the vinyl plastic curls and loses its shape. Just as sparkly? Not quite, but good enough. Which brings us to Michael Jackson. One night in 1983 when he performed Billie Jean and premiered The Moonwalk. He wore a black sequin jacket along with his iconic rhinestone glove a look that made a lasting impression on the 47 million viewers who turned in to watch the Motown 25, yesterday, today, forever television special. But that wasn't the last time he'd be covered in shiny platelets. How about when he met the President of the United States in 1984 wearing a military-style sequin jacket, or on the History World Tour when he wore a white sequin number? Melting edible discs? Be damned. Sequins are here to stay, and who knows what they'll be made from 50 years from now. Yes, we expect to see them on a New Year's Eve dress, but we've also grown accustomed to seeing them emblazoned on a basic white t-shirt or a pair of flats. With accessibility comes diluted trends, and with that comes, well, shapeless Ugg boots covered in what was once a symbol of attention-grabbing and if you'd like to see some photographs of costumes and sequins through the ages, especially the ones mentioned in this story, visit the show notes, click on the link to this article and take a look. Some of them are quite fascinating. Well everyone, that concludes the Origins Podcast, episode 139. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And until next time, whether it be Mysteries Abound or Origins... This is Paul saying bye for now. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.